This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is Kevin Werbach from the Wharton School. You're listening to After the Blockchain Bubble here on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. Delighted to welcome my last guest on the show, Marco Santori, President and Chief Legal Officer of Blockchain, the world's largest cryptocurrency wallet provider, uh, formerly uh, known as the Dean of Blockchain Lawyers um, uh, from his time at uh, Cooley and Pillsbury Winthrop. Uh, one of the um, leading figures in the legal profession uh, working with companies uh, in the blockchain space. Uh, and so, Marco, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, you know, last year uh, you left uh, the law firm world to go in-house, uh, and uh, it's obviously been an eventful time. I guess there, there's never been a non-eventful time in the crypto space, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, what's your experience been like in that time? Uh, I got to tell you, it's been great. Um, this is a once in a generation opportunity to join something that's that's going to touch the lives of of everybody on the planet. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who felt this way sometime around 1998, 1999, when it became. Um, it started to become obvious to a lot of people that the internet was going to change the way people live. Um, and I think <laughs> I know that there were a lot of lawyers that made their way out of a uh, big firm, uh, cushy law legal practice to the company side and took a little bit of a risk um, and never looked back. So I, uh, I feel like, I feel like that's, that's, that's the path here for crypto. Yeah. Although, I mean, I remember some of my friends from law school who did that, uh, you know, and people consulting firms very late in the dot-com bubble years. And then the, the, that crash came uh, in 2002 and uh, a lot of them left and didn't go back. They, they went back to the, the safety of their, um, their previous industries. Do you see any of that happening now in the blockchain space? I don't really, but I'm, I'm curious your perspective. Yeah, I, I can I can confirm your uh, I can confirm your observation. I feel like most of the people that end up leaving the institutional side and going to um, going to the 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 side that's really building that's really building the stuff and not and not just reacting to it. I feel like most of those people end up staying because they're true believers. Um, and it took you know true true. It took a true believer to leave in this place, um, because yeah, there are risks. There are risks on a you know on a personal and a, and a career level that everybody, I think everybody sees when when they leave the cushy institutional nest and find their way into into the company side, um, into the more experimental side. But um, I got to tell you, so far I haven't seen a whole lot of people go back. And, you know, you were, as I said, very involved with the whole uh, ICO uh, gold rush that, that happened last year, not not as a, a promoter of the, the gold rush per se, but uh, as a legal advisor to, to some of the most prominent projects that were using that uh, model. And, you know, now we've seen regulators start to get a lot more active and, and lots of concerns about the, the legitimacy of the whole space. Um, so, you know, from the perspective of today, um, you know, where do you think things went wrong, or, or is it wrong to say that things went wrong? Well, I actually didn't. Um, I actually was involved in that. Um, I didn't. I didn't do. Uh, I didn't advise on on many ICOs at all. In fact, as I as I as I sit here today, I can't I can't think of a pre-functional token sale that um, I advised on, except to say 
don't do it. Um, <laughs> I can, I actually, I can, I can't think of one, and there were very good reasons for why that thing was that that sale was probably not an illegal sale of securities. But um, no, my involvement in the in the token sale space uh, was mostly as a self-regulatory reactionary measure to ICO, saying, look, these things are probably not only suboptimal, but um, they they violate the spirit and the letter of the law. In fact, I wrote, um, I, I co-authored um, a paper on it called the SAFT Project White Paper that's been widely credited, um, <laughs> for better or for worse, helping to destroy the ICO market. Um, and so... So yeah, I guess I guess I would I would I would recharacterize the way, the way that you put it. I think that um, I think that ICOs really um, were this incredibly um, experimental time in uh, in crypto, and it helped to unleash quite a bit of creativity and economic power. But uh, you know, my position on it was that they they probably did it in the wrong way. Okay, and I, I don't want to get too far in the weeds. I was, was certainly not trying to, to mischaracterize what you did, but um, you, you're you're defining ICOs as the you know, pre-functional sale of a token before there's any network built out without complying with the securities law. So maybe as for, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, what exactly did the SAF do, and how is that different from the, the ICO model that you're talking about? Yeah, I see. You know, for an ICO, you'd, you'd have a white paper and a file, and you'd pre-sell a token that didn't really do anything besides trade on an exchange, take in millions of dollars and use that money to develop a functional network. Um, the SAF project white paper called that out as something that was that was probably illegal and, and, and suboptimal from a business and economics perspective and, and proposed another model, the, the SAF framework, the Simple Agreement for Future Token, which um, was a, just a document. Says, look, if you if you don't have a, a working a working piece of technology and you're selling bits and pieces of it to people who are buying it for you know for the for for capital appreciation purposes, they're buying it to speculate to make money. There's nothing wrong with that, but you should probably be following the securities laws. And then once 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 the thing works, once once the tokens are actually able to be put to their intended purpose, and you've fulfilled the promises that you made in your in your white paper and your uh, your Telegram chat group and your banner ads for, for those that chose to run them. At that point, the thing is really more of a functional commercial good, um, and the securities laws aren't the right laws to apply. At that point, you're probably not selling a security. And you know, about a month after we published that paper, there were, there really were no more pre-functional tokens sales in the United States, um, and there. I, I got to tell you, I, I don't think there have been any since. Um, so the SAFT framework has mostly mostly taken over the the, the, the pre-sale of utility tokens. And uh, you know, as I noted, the, there have been a number of uh, enforcement actions by the SEC and other regulators of some of these projects that were not complying with the securities laws. Do, do you think the regulators have been too aggressive or, or not aggressive enough? No, I. I think that by and large we've um, we've had <laughs> the wrong regulatory balance, and that it's not that we haven't that, that the regulators have been too aggressive or not aggressive enough. I, I feel like we haven't had the right mix of regulators. A lot of these things are just consumer goods, where the 
seller lied to the purchaser about or materially misled the purchaser about what they were going to do and, and how they were going to use the money and, and all that stuff. And for a lot of under a lot of those circumstances, the SEC, the, the Securities Exchange Commission, the Securities, the Securities Exchange Commission, the regulator that is responsible for protecting investors, is right to step in and is right to be aggressive. Um, but in a lot of these enforcement actions, what we've seen is this sort of torturous winding to try to gain jurisdiction over um, over some of the over some of the defendants here and over some of the circumstances. When really, probably the simpler, just just from a purely academic perspective, uh, prob- the simpler approach would have just been for the FTC, the Trade Commission, come in and say, "Look, this is this is a good in commerce. You lied, and you committed fraud. This is regular old common law fraud. Doesn't have to be securities fraud, um, and we can still have regulatory activity. We we still could have had bad people going." Uh, bad people getting punished. We still could have had uh, risks being uh, being controlled for, uh, but without a lot of the regulatory uncertainty now that um, has fallen onto entrepreneurs who are trying to launch new token projects, it, it could have been as 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 simple um, as finding the right regulator um, mm. for these things. But, but of course. <laughs> Hindsight is uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and yeah. I think that the regulators, for what it's worth, have done a tremendous job of trying to balance things. Unfortunately, we, we've got to wrap up soon as we have a hard break at the end of the hour. So I wanted to ask you one more question, going back to what you're doing now at, at blockchain. Um, you, I've heard you say that um, most of your wallets are outside the U.S. And, and curious, you know, for listeners that are here, what is it that people least understand about the different manifestations of cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain in other countries? Um, I think that what I, I think the biggest misconception um, actually is between the the two worlds. So, um, in the Western world and the Northern Hemisphere, where Money, generally speaking, is good, and people, generally speaking, still trust trust their banks even after the events of 2008. Um, people believe that cryptocurrencies are mostly just for speculating, for turning your dollars or pounds or euros into more dollars and pounds or euros. And, and by and large, that is how a lot of people um, in this part of the world use cryptocurrencies. But our users are primarily not in this part of the world. We have, you know, for a, for a month there, we had more signups in Kenya than we had in Texas. Um, the people use blockchain; they use our software, um, not to speculate, but to survive because their local currencies are not that good, um, because their payment systems are not that good, and because their banks are not that reliable, because their governments are not that reliable. This is one of the early use cases of Bitcoin. It persists. Yep. People people still yep. still use it to live. And so, you know, blockchains, blockchain is is, is not um, not a speculative platform. All right. So uh, I, I unfortunately, so the, yeah, I need to cut you off there. I'm sorry because we have a hard break at the end of the <laughs> hour. Um, and sorry we don't have more time. But uh, I just want to thank you, Marco Santori, for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 